0: Hello and welcome to Intrigue Explained, the Al Jabbering About Cop edition. With me as always is Dmitry Grozbinsky, the founder and director of Explained Trade. Dimitri, how are you? I
1: am very well, though. It is absolutely pouring rain here. And it turns out that in Geneva, at least, when it rains, absolutely everyone gets into their cars and the entire city just stops. It's weird.
0: You'd have thought they'd be more used to miserable wintry weather. But anyway, also with me is Helen. Now, Helen Zhang is my co-founder at International Intrigue. But more interestingly than that, Helen's just touched down in Dubai for the COP28 meetings. How are you, Helen?
2: I'm well. It's me and 70,000 other people. So just a very intimate, small gathering. Your best friends. My besties. That's right.
0: Exactly. That's a perfect way to kick off this podcast because what we're going to be talking about is COP28. We're going to give you all a bit of an overview on what's going on, why it matters and what our thoughts are on the fact that the UAE is the host. We'll dig into some of the controversies and generally just have a bit of a chat because today, as we're recording, was the first official day of the COP28 conference of party climate change, whatever you want to call it, the meetings in Dubai. So let me kick that off, folks, with a bit of a news hook for us. I woke up this morning at US time to the news that COP28 has already had an announcement, a major announcement, an agreement to a loss and damage fund. Now, I'll just read a couple of quotes here from the news stories. Host country UAE and Germany both pledged $100 million to the loss and damage startup fund, which aims to Keep up with rising costs caused by extreme weather, slow-onset disasters such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, and melting glaciers. The initial funding of the whole fund is close to US $429 million, and it'll come from the EU, Japan, UK, US, and a few others. Huge announcement on the first day of COP. Loss and Damage Fund has been a sticking point for COP negotiations, for climate change negotiations, for climate change issue globally. It's this general idea that we want to reimburse developing nations disproportionately affected by climate change with money from developed nations who have benefited from fossil fuel use, industrialization, these kinds of ideas. So I'll I'll leave it there and not monologue too much. Anyone have any thoughts on A, this agreement and B, just the the general state of affairs on the first day of COP?
2: I think we have to give huge credit to... Egypt as well, right? This all stemmed from last year, which was in Sharm el-Sheikh in the, the Sinai in Egypt, uh, where they started talking about this. And there was been a whole year of really tense negotiations to lead up to it. Because I think the idea of having more wealthy countries pay for the, the losses that developing countries incur was just went through a lot of the new cycle last year. So I think we want to give credit to Egypt for that. And this is a huge boon. This is a really great way to kick off the, uh, the COP28 negotiations, right? And probably distracting away from some of the other bad media that the, uh, the UAE has received in recent days as well. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. All the spicy takes. Stay tuned.
1: <laughs> That's the fun bit. Yeah, so I, I found this quite interesting, from, I guess from a negotiation standpoint. The fact that the UAE itself is, I think, making the largest contribution if you consider EU member states as individuals was obviously pretty significant to getting this done and getting this done quickly. There's nothing like giving people 100 million reasons to to walk along with you. A sticking point was apparently that developed countries wanted this thing run out of the World Bank and developing countries had issues with that. And I'd be really interested in your views on why that was and some of the dynamics around it. Let me just ask you, what do you mean by run out of the World Bank? So the fund will be managed, as I understand it, out of the World Bank initially. My understanding, and you know, this agreement is very hot off the presses, is the idea is that will not be permanent. Eventually, there'll be a different management structure in place. For those who don't know how these funds work, it's a big pot of money that issues grants. So there has to be a secretariat that has to look at applications for this money and decide where to deploy it. And one of the sticking points had been, okay, who exactly is going to do that? And they appear to have settled on the World Bank. Yeah. And my understanding is that was
0: quite contentious in negotiations between Egypt, the COP in Egypt, and now in that developing nations- didn't want that to happen because obviously the World Bank politically is dominated by the US and its interests. So I think they felt perhaps that, and the World Bank also is famously fairly opaque in how it goes about its business and doesn't really have too many, I wouldn't say it's not transparent in the sense that it does have oversight, but it's not as transparent as those developing nations certainly would like. And I think the idea there might be that there wouldn't be a hell of a lot of recourse or insight into a decision to disallow a grant, for example. So I think they were not very thrilled about that idea, but developed nations seem to have got their way on that one because it will be run out of the World Bank for four years, I think I read, at least four years. I think it's going to be very difficult to pull it out of the World Bank after four years, after you've got processes and political inertia having it sit there. But, you know, I read one article that suggested that in return for allowing it to be run out of the World Bank, Developed nations agreed to expand the definition of countries that could apply for grants, that could access this damage fund. I think the developed nations, and I'm trying to enunciate here because I get confused between developed and developing so much, it's easy to get twisted up. But developed nations wanted to limit the people who could or the countries that could apply to the fund to, I think, small island nations and really less developed nations which excluded some big ones like the Philippines and whatnot from applying to it. But they've agreed to expand that definition is my understanding.
2: So really just targeting the countries that I think are on the front line, all right, Getting hit by climate change. That's the sort of idea. What is also interesting about the World Bank in recent years is that there's been a big push to try and reform it so that it can provide a bit more of a better deal compared to China's offerings. So I think this is also like a huge win geopolitically for those who are trying to keep the world finances centered on like the red and wood institutions like the World Bank. That's been really interesting to watch play out in DC, actually.
0: Yeah, I bet. I, I think that's actually a good point because it's not just the transparency stuff that I mentioned about the World Bank being not the ideal place from the perspective of the developing nations. Right. There's just too many numbers, but the g, G6, G8, g said, there's a G30 or something I think I read somewhere the other day. Anyway, the, G, G, the G77 the G countries, which are largely led by China, or at least informally, informally, were really instrumental in getting this fund. A, agreed to be agreed last year and now agreed in more substance. And China obviously has a huge interest in not having it in the World Bank because it keeps the World Bank important, relevant, politically powerful. So that's
1: another element of why the World Bank was probably not their first choice. I think it's useful at this point to note that The way that the World Bank and the IMF work is, firstly, the IMF is always run by a European. The World Bank is always run by someone from the U.S. And in different ways, they are both effectively conditional grant-making bodies. So the IMF will bail out your government's finances in exchange for certain conditions. And the World Bank will fund development projects in your country, including really big ones also under certain conditions and the leadership of those the leadership of those institutions including the vote shares which are based on your contribution to the fund which means it's run by the donors they effectively get to set those conditions and those conditions can align ideologically with the governments of the day in the west so for a lot of developing countries they feel like it is a gift with a fishing hook in it to receive something from the IMF and the World Bank, whereas the BRICS Development Bank, the, the big Chinese-led um, bank, there's a there was at least initially a perception that this could be either tied to a different ideology or be less ideological.
0: You've just cracked open a, a very interesting count of worms there. <laughs> Let me play the chief provoker, as I seem to always do. This fund, I think it's important to note, is reparations is a politically charged word, but it's essentially for things that have happened and uh, costs that have been incurred to try and make developing nations not whole, but to, to mitigate some of those losses. It's not about future mitigation. It's not about, as you just mentioned, Dimitri, funding future projects that will help a country deal with the effects of climate change in the future. It's about saying, hey, you guys have super suffered from the things that are happening and here's some money to try and make that better. So my question to you is, Why shouldn't that come with strings attached? We know a lot of these countries, and this is a controversial comment, a lot of these countries are fairly corrupt places. A lot of developing nations don't have the kinds of oversight that we would like. How do we know that this huge amount of money isn't just going to go into fund organizations, governments, regimes that will just siphon it off?
2: I don't think that it's about whether or not it should have conditions, right? I think the conditions thing is a good thing for everyone to be on board with and for people to be held accountable when they are dispersing the funds. I think it's more about the way that the funds are being dispersed and the move and the sort of like process in which they, it's done, right? I think what we're seeing in like in DC certainly is that a lot of people have been flown in and are doing sort of rotation through DC to try and push up the, these international institutions to make them a little bit more nimble and a little quicker at sort of processing these uh, the way that these funds are administered and trying to make things a little bit more nimble so that they can compete with the Chinese fund. So I think I didn't really answer your question. Did I, John? I think I did, but then I pivoted. But I do think that we should have conditions tied. Uh, it's just that they've got to be, there's got to be a better way of like quickly doing a stop take of whether or not it was effective and measuring effectiveness rather than a sort of year to five year horizon, because things have got to move quicker.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. The temptation for donors is always to pile on more and more bureaucracy, results-based management and process, because from a donor standpoint, the nightmare scenario is a front page headline that says, Australian aid money funds terrorism or organized crime. And so if that headline comes out, the department wants to be able to point to a long list of things that it has put in place to prevent that. And there's nothing wrong with that impulse, but that does tend to lead to a lot of bureaucracy and second-guessing. But I think the bigger issue, especially when it comes to the World Bank, is that, for example, the U.S. election goes a certain way. Then Donald Trump may be picking the next president of the World Bank and may pick someone who, for example, doesn't believe climate change is a thing at all, or, or doesn't believe that the U.S. owes anything to anyone. So you would have a situation where this fund could be in the hands of someone who ideologically, fundamentally disagrees with its premise. So you can understand the awareness may not necessarily be directly about having any kind of controls, though certainly I think most developing countries would prefer less over more, not out of desire to be corrupt, but just because they want that money, they want it yesterday. And they don't want to spend a year filling out forms to get it.
0: I, I hear what both of you are saying, but I don't think either of you really engaged with the issue of corruption and uh, the fact that we have a massive issue of propping up autocracies and entrenched interests around the world. And we've just agreed to a huge ongoing fund, the, the likes of which really don't exist in any kind of we don't really have that many sort of slush funds around the world saying we're going we're going to fill them with a hundred billion dollars a year for developing countries to essentially and this is the key point that I want to get to look back and make things right rather than look forward it's one thing to I agree with you guys saying it's urgent and important because climate change is moving more far, far more quickly than we're dealing with it so we need to fund things like that will mitigate the risks going forward but what we're saying is' we're, we're farmers who've lost their jobs or seaside villages who've lost their livelihoods because fish have left or whatever the, the, the damage, undeniable damage of climate change has been, this money is going to try and make your economy or your people a little bit better off. That strikes me as a, absol- a worse solution than doing nothing would probably be giving a regime which treats its people terribly and funds wars and doesn't have any interest in making people's lives better, giving them access to a slush fund to perpetuate that kind of stuff. Or am I just way off base here?
2: I don't think it's necessarily off-base, John. I think that's like the sort of doomsday scenario that we take. And again, I always go back to the what's the alternative. There needs to be a tighter sort of like regime of like making sure these funds aren't misappropriated and misused. But the reality is I think there's a, a bit of like this, this loss embedded into the amount of funds, right? There's like a certain amount that I think people just expect Perhaps that will be imbe-
0: I think that's a really important point because I don't think too many people do accept that that will happen. And I think they absolutely should. I completely agree with you, Helen. Like corruption is the cost of doing business in a lot of places. And as long as you keep it within a margin of risk, it's acceptable. But my question isn't just like that margin of risk. Without World Bank Oversight, how do we have any sense of where the money is going?
1: I, I-, I think you are strawmanning this a little bit in the sense that I think the option was World Bank or giant building full of unmarked U.S. bills that any government can walk into and just one of those wind machines where you sit there and any money you can catch. There was always going to have to be quite a lot of bureaucratic infrastructure around this. It was always going to have to be a managed fund with criteria, results-based management, etc. The debate was, where is this housed? I have a lot of time for the developed country argument to go, if you're thinking about institutions that can manage half a billion dollars in cash, there aren't actually that many institutions out there that have experience with grant making on that scale. It's your Bill and Melinda Gates, your World Bank, your IMF, and then some government government aid agencies. And then beyond that, the list gets pretty narrow. The BRICS, Yes, the <laughs> bricks. Arguably. One Belt, One Road could have run this fund. Somewhere. I'm not sure I would want to follow that yellow brick road, but.
2: That's the other thing, right? I don't think there's any other contender to do this aside from the World Bank in terms of both will and like the huge bureaucratic apparatus. I'll do it. Good for you, Jim. Step up there.
1: Explain trade stands ready. I'll wire across (laughs) my SWIFT details and get this going. That's right. Invest in some Discover some of that corruption John's so excited about.
0: Okay. I think that's a good point to pivot on away from the details of the loss and damage fund to the COP. 28, Conference of Parties 28 more generally. It's a huge announcement on day one, which is a smart PR move, of course, to get people talking about COP, climate change, all those kinds of things. But there's a ton of different things that are on the agenda. Uh, Helen, you're on the ground there. So I presume you have an insight into all things COP and the COP oracle for us, but what else is the, what are the other big issues that need to be resolved over the next two weeks or at least talked about? Oh if not wow, the,
2: the COP Oracle, that's got to be something I add to my LinkedIn profile, which is also just blatantly untrue because I have no idea what's going on here. The first of all, just to set the scene for you all, right? This place is just chaos. There, there's 70,000 people there and there are all sorts of sideline events and uh, formal conferences that people are like piling onto. So it's 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 really difficult to find out what is actually happening uh, when you're even on the ground, right? So that that's thing number one. The second thing is I think the key agenda item that people are looking at, probably things like the big targets of tripling renewable energy use by 2030, which of course with itself comes with that promise comes with a lot of difficulties that we saw even with today's intrigue story about that copper mine in, in Panama and the sort of difficulties and actually Getting to that renewable target, even if the will is there. Some other things that have been talked about if, is, of course, reducing methane, which is effectively like cow fart, right? And people in the U.S. who who love a uh, steak uh, will probably push back on that. And then the other thing I think we're talking about is thinking about the climate finance piece, right? Which is something that, you know, you, we've just really talked about in terms of how we can rethink climate finance. And the other stuff that comes, goes on is all, all the things that happen on the sideline, which I, I'm trying to be a hanger on to and get on the action on. I mean, it's things like Brazil announcing that they're going to do more on forestry, or it's things like other smaller countries working on the, the way that they use the materials for building the infrastructure, like on concrete and cement. And then there's all these other random things about how business and philanthropy can get involved in the whole sort of COP narrative. So I think that's... All there is to say that there's just a lot of things going on, but I think the key agenda things, what we've discussed, and of course, obviously the global stocktake, which I, I think we'll get to.
0: Yeah. Dimitri, as Helen's talking, it it occurs to me that I'm really uh, pretty naive when it comes to climate change. It's not my area of expertise. If I were, actually explain it to me like I'm me, what is COP? We've just heard a ton of different things that are getting talked about. Let's zoom out from that. What is it? It's just a bunch of people in a bunch of different rooms talking about the environment. Like, I, it's a bit of a higgledy-piggledy thing, right?
1: It is quite a higgledy-piggledy thing because COP, which stands for Conference of the Parties, is the annual meeting at which all of the parties to the now, I think, six or seven various treaties around climate come together to monitor progress on the treaties they've already signed and do all of the forward work that those entail, plus on top of that, try to make some sort of new commitments on top of that, like the one we've just seen. So it is effectively a several-week version of what, for example, the World Trade Organization does for all of the trade treaties all year round. This is the high-level meeting at which all of the parties come together and try to look at how Kyoto is going, look at how the Paris Treaty is going, and then also look at everything else. And a lot of these multilateral meetings, the logic behind doing that in this way with fanfare is trying to create the political moment in which you might be able to summon the political will to do something. So the fact that there is pressure to announce something at COP, because all of these ministers and leaders are there, can help governments do things that they might otherwise not do. It's such a,
0: it's such a good point that it's disturbing how much of the world is run by the need for ministers and other decision makers to have something to announce to the press so they look like they're doing their jobs. Random aside here, Dimitri, you'll be all across this one, but when Australia signed the, the, their free trade agreement with the post-Brexit UK there's all that reporting about Scott Morrison going to London and Boris Johnson wanting to be able to announce in the morning that they'd signed this FTA with Australia. And Scott Morrison refused to shake, said, I refuse to shake your hand tomorrow for photo ops, unless we get these extra concessions at the last minute. And Boris Johnson went, okay. And now it's got the photo, shook his hand, got to say he got an FTA. Now it's like widely regarded in the UK, particularly by the farmers, all their interest groups that he basically sold out UK agriculture to Australia because he wanted a photo op. He wanted an announceable. And what you're saying is really important. It's okay, so how can we create? There's all these massive different elements to how you combat climate change. That's the high level idea is the world is burning. We need to stop emissions and, and make it burn less. How do you do all the things that are required to get that to happen? How do you compensate folks for previous harm? How do you mitigate in the future? How do you deal with the disparity of wealth, of effect? All these types of things. The idea here is you go, okay, once a year, we have a giant two-week meeting with all the people who are involved and all the different stakeholders, and there are literally maybe tens of thousands of different groups involved, and we say they will be all under the pressure to announce to their various funders and voters, they'll all be under pressure to announce stuff, and that pressure will hopefully galvanize people to get in a room and just agree to stuff because otherwise we'll all just not agree on anything forever because there's always risk and there's always issues with agreeing to stuff. But the motivating force that you want to be seen to be announcing stuff is what ties us all together. It's wild.
2: Yeah, it is absolutely wild. I think there's also an element, of course, like power projection and just like being here for the sake of being seen to be here. Similar to what I think King Charles is here today, as well as Pope Francis, there's so much of this international circus as i mentioned for governments to be here and to be seeing that to be doing stuff to for their constituents and it's the same with all the industry lobby groups or professional services as well when we think about business right they want to be signaling to a lot of their clients that hey we care about this and that's why we've flown halfway around the world on business class flight to be present and to hold a conference about these issues that we're are working on so So much about this sort of like the flex of, hey, this McKinsey stand is better than the Bloomberg stand, and what else can we bring to this conversation? There's so much of that jostling going on too.
1: I will say something that doesn't get talked about enough, because I guess we're just like, I realize this is a poor metaphor to use in climate change context, but we are frogs boiling in the pot on this issue, (laughs) is that how successful the, I suppose, anti-climate change, the activist movements have been in changing the desire of greenness into being something that even the McKinsey's of this world have to drape themselves in. 15, 20 years ago, climate change was this absolutely niche thing that, cl- that some scientists were freaking out about. It was barely in the conversation, and it was like this vague concern. And now you have this position where very large firms are saying it is in our fiduciary shareholder interest to be seen at least, to be taking climate change very seriously, because that is what is going to help us retail customers and attract top staff who are passionate about this. That is an absolutely know if it's unprecedented, but it's a huge victory for climate activism worldwide. And I don't think it is automatic because of the science or the effects of climate change. I don't think climate change became so obvious that it became inescapable. I think activists just changed the conversation.
2: Yeah. And businesses really jumped onto that, right? Remember that year that BlackRock had put this in its annual letter to all its investors? I think that was for many people in the US, certainly when they look at investors appetites for engaging with stuff on climate and needing to do it rather than wanting to do it. That was the change. I think that was like in 2019 or 2020, whenever that was. So yeah, now we've seen this as being additional, in addition to being like a huge government kind of fanfare negotiations coming in, the biggest sort of attendees by far from the private sector. And they are all here to show that they have money to spend on clean tech and the adaptation, mitigate mitigate technologies and financing. It's really interesting to to watch it all play out.
0: One of one of my thoughts immediately when you're talking about that, Helen and, and Dimitri, is obviously the cynicism.
2: Love it. Uh, Love a bit of Jay Fowler cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: not, it's actually not not my cynicism for once. It's, I think that the BlackRock, you, you mentioned the BlackRock letter, I remember it very well because the first thing was, oh, ESG is just a way for asset managers, general capital, capital allocators to greenwash their act their activities, and every other week you see a story about how BlackRock or KKR or whatever the, the fund allocator is saying, oh, we're going to invest in, in green technologies, but then also invest in giant mines in Uzbekistan or wh- whatever the issue is. This is a perfect pivot point to talking about the host of this year's COP, Ooh, yeah. which is the, U- the UAE, the eighth largest uh, oil producing nation on the planet. The state-owned oil company, which is called Adnok got 802 million in net profits last year 33% increase from 2021 so that was 2022 so last year it had 802 million in profits pales in comparison to their neighbors in in Saudi Arabia but it's a ton of profit and the the whole controversy about this is that how can you have a petrostate a country whose interests are keenly tied to the perpetuation of the fossil fuel industry how can they be the host the neutral or the facilitating host of a global conference, which is designed to almost put them out of business.
2: I really disagree with that argument, John. So I'm going to go on the offensive here. To be clear, it's just, not mine. I, uh, fair enough. There's a lot of things that the UAE doesn't quite sit well with me, including the sort of inequalities here that we've talked about briefly before the show. And just uh, the, this this country approaches migrant workers. But look, putting all that aside, I think the issue here of having somebody who is in the thick of it, in the oil business, leading this club is actually a good thing because in order to get to the renewables target that we're going to meet, we're still going to need a lot of fossil fuels to get us there, right? This is not a new argument. But also Sultan El Jabe, he's also led the, the renewables startup uh, since 2006 for the UAE. So I think he's somebody who really trying to understand or at least has had experience in seeing how the transition of fossil fuels to renewables can actually work. So you can't, if I'm realistic to say that we can't have a petro in this conversation, because ultimately we're driving them out of business because you need them at the table. You need them to be a part of the conversation to make change. So I don't know. I think that this is a good thing and it's probably going to produce a lot of outcomes that are more, more ambitious and probably more full than in previous years because they actually have a seat at the table as part of the, the GCC.
0: Before Dimitri jumps in with his usual debate ending brilliance, I would just say that the the idea that you have to have them at the table to get ambitious agreements is an interesting one, because if their interests are in, and I agree with everything you've said personally, but the argument would be that by having them at the table, you're going to water down anything that happens. you're going to dilute any ambition, you're going to dilute the agreements, they're going to push out timelines, they're going to say, "Yes, we understand that the wind is blowing in the direction of renewables, so no argument. I think, to Dimitri's point earlier, earlier, the climate activists have done a brilliant job in pushing people past the idea of, is climate change real? There really isn't any debate about that at COP anymore from really anybody other than the kind of more fringe elements of, of the conversation. But what they are saying is, sure, but we need to make sure we do this properly. We need to make sure that it happens in a stable way, which is obviously their interest because they want to sell as much oil for as long as they can because their country depends on it. So how then do you square the circle of saying that it's going to be more ambitious with having someone there whose interests are to make it less ambitious?
1: Unfortunately, the challenge of transitioning away from fossil fuels is so vast that I do not believe that the determining factor will be exactly how invested the president of COP 8, or indeed COP anything, is personally and nationally in the outcome. I believe that the sort of headwinds are so strong that if he were coming from a nation that had never dug up a single drop of oil and had never used a single car, I do not believe that the outcome would be significantly greater. And I do not believe he could actively sabotage in truly, a truly ambitious outcome that were his dream. I will also say that I think we can get very quickly into trouble here when we start doing purity screening for hosts and presidents of multilateral conferences, because at that point, if you start going, okay, we're not producing oil maybe, but that means you definitely can't host it in the U.S. Right. under any circumstances. Huge per capita user, huge producer. I'm just producer in the world or,
2: now the U.S. No? Yep.
1: You can't host it in the U.S., you can't host it in most of the developed world, because our per capita emissions and use is really high, and many of us are producers or refiners. Can't host it in China. We can't just do absolutely everything in the one morally pure nation on earth, which, I don't know, like Samoa, maybe? Clearly, Bhutan.
2: Have you seen their rugby team? If you've seen the Samoa rugby team play, you would be calling the pu- pu- purity
1: I think about having seen Samoans, I will definitely call them pure for my safety. I'll call them whatever they (laughs) want to be called. I won't disagree. (laughs) Yes, boss will, I believe, meet my line.
0: So I think you make a great, I I think I'm trying to find any cracks in our views on this stuff. I think what you say is absolutely right. And I think something that bears noting here is that these, that Saudi Arabia, the UAE, other Gulf petro-states really don't have a hell of a lot to their economies other than oil. It strikes me that even having them involved in the conversation shows them that within a short period of time, and we can debate about how long that is and how long it needs to be, but within, say, 50 years, oil will be a far less important input into the global economy than it is now. So that you're setting a timer for these countries. You're saying you've got 50 years to transition your economies away from that. You've got 50 years to spend the outrageous profits that you're earning off oil into developing an economy for the future it's happening you can't stop it happening but let's work with you to figure it out and the uae has you can call it greenwashing you can i think dimitri you make an amazing point about uh, purity of motives it's just naive to think that that you have to do good because you have a pure heart if you're doing good for your own interest then that's great right and the uae has been one of the largest investors in renewable energy projects they are spending a lot and same is true of Saudi Arabia, and we're not going to get into Saudi Arabia because there's a whole different kettle of fish there. But the idea that they're going around the world and funding, I saw a giant wind farm in now one of the stands. You're going to have to bear with me. I think it was Bekistan. Uh, Jabbar went north and unveiled a giant billion, maybe $2 billion investment in a solar and wind farm up there. Because what he's saying is that we, we, our, our geopolitical relevance is because we're rich and we're oil producing. We want to keep that geopolitical relevance. We understand that it's not going to come from oil in 50 years. So it's going to come from having our investment fingers in all of the renewable pies around the world. Result being these projects get funded in a way that they might not have otherwise. And isn't that a net good?
2: Yeah, I think we're seeing of the same song sheet here, John. I think it is a net good. And I think they know that their time is not on their side. So they're hiring a whole bunch of consultants and other really smart people to help them really galvanize their economy going forward in like fossil fuel proof it, right? Have you seen the of the Mad Like we were all subjected to this on the flight as we landed here on the Emirates. And you're like, oh, maybe I do want to take a jet ski. And the, what are those like jet things that take you up the water? The ones I'm talking about where you're like basically flying through the water. Things like that. That's the future of the UAE, really.
1: I think one thing that this kind of debate is a microcosm of is the utter frustration of climate change and the green transition is that we probably won't be able to do it without the active cooperation and enrichment of many of the global bodies and stakeholders that caused the problem in the first place. Shell and the giant oil companies that made all of their fortune out of pumping carbon into the atmosphere are some of the few actors who have the capital and the global reach to be able to deploy ginormous clean energy projects. The big manufacturers, whose hands probably aren't clean at all, are the only ones with the economies of scale to build solar panels at the volumes that we need. And I think that's similar with this. If if we're going to try to do things like COP without throwing some bones to some people whose hands aren't clean on carbon, we're probably not going to get very far.
0: So, Dimitri, what would you say is the pushback to that. What would a climate activist who disagrees with, I think, what we've all kind of settled on as, I don't want to say necessary evil, because I think that's actually too far, but like the idea of like, the reality of international cooperation is that you can't have your cake and eat it too. So what would a climate activist who would disagree with our points, what would they be saying? What, what's their strongest argument in your mind?
1: I think they would say that something that really matters is who's in the room. And in most multilateral fora, at the end of the day, it is a state-to-state thing. So what activists would say is, hey, we're locked out of that decision-making room, but these guys who, are, who created the problem and are getting rich off the problem are in the room shaping these outcomes. We don't trust that they aren't throwing spanners into the works, and we don't trust their motivations. That would be, I think, the first argument. The second one is... Doesn't this hurt the credibility of the entire project with society? This fighting climate change is going to require so much public buy-in because at some point we're going to have to start asking people to make sacrifices. And things which undermine the global credibility of the global anti-climate change movement or sort of the, the movement to fight climate change, anything that makes it look disingenuine or bought and paid for, or to the benefit at the big end of town, or the oil producers, is going to make it that much harder to turn around to ordinary people and say, you have to experience some pain on this. I think that would be the strongest argument I can think of that a climate change activist would make after he said, boy, you guys are so persuasive and good looking. I have changed my view.
2: He or she did. And then they would throw probably some paint on the Mona Lisa. Sorry, we're starting to sound like real boomers here.
0: It's an interesting kind of point to wrap up on because I think Al Gore at the start, not not at the start of this movement, but probably in everybody in our lifetime, certainly the kind of defining start of this period of mm. climate change advocacy was an inconvenient truth. Al Gore's movie back in whenever that was, two thousand and four.
1: Yeah,
2: when he yeah, lost the election, okay. and then he was like, you know what, I'm going to make a movie. You
0: got to go do something else. Yeah, old. I know it's upsetting, isn't it? But his his kind of thinking on that is you do this stuff called cathedral thinking, right? You set up the framework, the outer limits of the framework within which you then have the conversations, you nut out all the special interests. You leave that to the messiness of a cop where you have the environmental folks talking to the loggers and, or not talking to, screaming at the loggers and the loggers ignoring the environmentalists, but you set the cathedral in which to have that conversation. And I think the protesting, and I don't want to get too far off track here, but it has done a pretty good job of making sure that the thinking does stay inside that cathedral. It's not about winning hearts and minds. That person doesn't care what you think of them, but they do say there's going to be a cost to going back on the agreed idea that climate change needs to be dealt with because we still care about it. We're still going to vote on it. And if you don't continue to have efforts to to, to sort it out, then we're going to have a tantrum. I don't think anyone would argue that it's a way to get anything done, but it is a way to set that cathedral up, right?
2: I love that cathedral thinking.
0: I shouldn't have said it's Al- it was Al Gore. I should have said it was an idea that I just had.
2: <laughs> we can edit it out, Jack.
0: It takes a village, Sean. Exactly. All right. I think that's, that's a good place to leave that there. It, it, we've obviously got two weeks left of COP. It's just the first day or first 24 hours of it. So we might even end up touching on this again, I suspect Mm. in the coming weeks, depending on the announcements, there's a bunch of stuff that needs to be talked about and, and decided. And to Dimitri's point about announcements, you can bet your bottom dollar there will be announcements of some sort towards the end of it, whether they're compelling or not is something that maybe we'll talk about. But as we always do before we sign off, we're going to do Diplomatic small talk. What are you? What have you got in the back pocket when you're stuck in a difficult conversation at a cocktail party that you'd rather not be at? Helen, what yes. is your topic for the week?
2: Given last week's relatively grim, grim things that we left uh, on, right. I think the, the mystery flu in China. I'm pivoting this week to a really great love story that I heard during the week. I should see John's face dropping already. But I have a friend of mine who is actually from Ghana, and uh, he studied in the UK and fell in love with his now wife, who is from Nigeria. And the families disagreed to their marriage. And so over the course of two years, he had to try really hard to win her family over. And in the end, what he ended up doing was writing a book called Good Things Happen in Glasgow. And that book has ended up getting like a five-star review on Amazon Books, which was very rare. And in the end, that's what ended up winning her family over. So his love for her was so great that they, he ended up writing a book about it, publishing it. What, and,
0: what's the book about?
2: It's about their love story and about overcoming prejudices between Ghanaians and Nigerians. And I think it's a love is a universal language, Sean. That's what it's about.
0: Oh, that, that is sickeningly sweet. <laughs> yes. All right. I'll, I'll go second. Mine is about Napoleon because that question about how often do you think about the Roman Empire, mine is generally World War II, but it's, not, it's pretty regularly Napoleon as well. Obviously the movie is out. I haven't seen it. I've got plans to go see it on Sunday night, but, and, and I've, I know the reviews say it's crap and I, I don't give a crap about those reviews. I'm on, I'm in Ridley Scott's camp where he said to that person, who was like, oh, it's actually historically really inaccurate. And he just responded, get a life. I'm on his side with that. Get a life. It's a bit, it's a bit of fun. Gladiator wasn't real either. Um, Wait, was and it you wasn't? Know, oh you, my if, God. <laughs> and if you want to, if you want to, if you want to go learn about Napoleon, there's plenty of very dry ways to go and do that. Let me have a blockbuster that sits in my wheelhouse of fetishizing 1800s military history. Anyway, the real thing I'm talking about is this article in Politico that was going around the intrigue slack this week, which said, which modern day politician is most like Napoleon? I love that. It was a great one. Some very quick highlights. Five out of five Napoleons goes to Emmanuel Macron. Mostly, I think, because he's short and French. I think that's the decision they came to. We had Peter Pavel, who is the Czech president and is this strapping former NATO general, very handsome bearded chap. He gets three out of five. Napoleons. I think
2: his actual name is.
0: There you go. He gets three out of five Napoleons. I think the three come from the fact that he's actually a military leader with decent credibility, but he loses points because he's too tall. Again, short, the, the whole thing. Boris Johnson gets one. The less said about that, the better, but I'm glad they gave him one. But the one that really made me laugh was Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer gets two out of five. Keir Starmer is probably the next prime minister of the UK, but currently the opposition leader (laughs) I'll read this. Keir Starmer gets two out of five Napoleons only for the fact that one of most of Napoleon's most famous quotes is when your enemy is making a wrong move, you should be careful not to interrupt them. This mantra has been very much taken at heart by the UK labor leader who does absolutely nothing while the Tories shoot themselves repeatedly in the foot and face. Brilliant. So it's hard to argue with, but I thought it was a great article and a good example of using the cultural zeitgeist to make a point that I completely agree with. Dimitri, what are you going to be chatting about?
1: Just to sandwich you, John, in between two sappy love stories, what I will be celebrating is that Nepal has just registered the first same-sex marriage in the country's history, it is only its Supreme Court apparently effectively legalized same sex marriage and granted same sex couples the same sort of legal rights as heterosexual couples in midway through the year. Nepal becomes only the second country in Asia to legalize same sex marriage, the What's first the one first? being. It's actually Taiwan, but now I've realized I've Isn't, said country. Sorry, I set you up. uh Yeah, I've thrown all of my electronics off the balcony, uh, deleting this recording and denying well, I think you'll have met. to
0: engage in a struggle session for a while and stand up on a stage
1: and explain why you're wrong and how you've corrected That's your right, thinking.
2: That's self-flagellate.
1: If I- on the recording, guys, you just hear a completely different voice go, <laughs> it's the first country, but a separate economic and customs territory. I would say Nepal quite a
0: conservative country in many ways, right? So that's big news. Yeah. But apparently
1: it has been becoming more and more progressive since 2006. So this is a lovely piece of news and hopefully opens the door to, to greater equality uh, across Asia, which would be lovely.
0: Oh,
2: love that. Sandwich by love. What a
1: lovely way to end.
0: Helen from Dubai, thank you very much, as always, for this week's deep insights. Thank you. Dimitri, thank you. Thank you, John. We'll be back next week. And until then, we'll be deeply following the COP announcements and we'll come up with something else to talk about next week. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate us and subscribe. You can also check out all of International Intrigue's great reporting from COP and all over the world via their newsletter. The sign-up link is in the episode description.